Okay. So this class apparently is concepts and Hasidus. <laughs> apparently. Why apparently? There was a dispute about whether it's topics in Hasidus or concepts in Hasidus. <laughs> so the what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and cover like each class somewhat independently. So that um, you don't have to really remember what we did last class. Makes your life easier. Of course, if you do remember what we learned in the last class, it will probably actually make your life easier because <laughs> concepts tend to um, help us understand other concepts long term. Okay, for today, we're going to talk about the soul. Seems like a good place to start, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and what we're going to do is we are going to disambiguate um, the concept of the soul. What does it mean to disambiguate? Make it more specific, less ambiguous. Good, good. Make it less ambiguous. Okay. What does that mean? So to disambiguate is when you have a term which is used in many different ways. And therefore, it is often ambiguous as to what the term means in a specific context. Mm-hmm. If you ever go on Wikipedia and you search for something, if you search for very common things that have many meanings, they'll have, actually have a page of disambiguate, so you can like, select which one you want. Right? Um, because um, you might be looking up a historical event, or you might be looking up something else that happened to go by the same name, and you want to like, clarify which one is which. Make sense? Okay, so if we use the term soul, and I'm using soul as kind of a catch-all English term for, for many words in Hebrew. Um, the words that, that could be used in Hebrew would be nefesh, ruach, and neshama. And I don't mean these as technical terms, I just mean if you were to read a, a, a classic text um, and you see the terms nefesh, ruach, and neshama, it would be perfectly valid in most contexts to translate that with the word soul, and yet they're not always referring to the same thing, and this is very confusing. So that's the goal of the class. Now, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to make several statements which are contradictory, and that will set the stage for why we need to disambiguate the term. So the first thing is that according to Hasidus, everything has a soul. The second statement, animals are different from plants because animals have souls where plants do not. The third statement, animals are different from plants in that animals have souls and plants do not. Those are clearly contradictory statements, yes? The third statement, is that only people have souls. What about only Jews? Oh. One second. One second. Okay. The next statement is that every Jew has two souls. How many statements do we have so far? Four. Okay. And last statement, every Jew has three souls. <laughs> So, clearly the word soul is not being used the same way in all of these different statements, right? Yes. Okay. And 
All of these uses of soul will show up in Hasidus at different points when discussing a Hasidic idea, so it's kind of helped to disambiguate the concept of soul. Okay? Um, let us begin. So, the first thing that I want to make clear is that I'm going to be approaching everything um, with an emphasis on clarity, and that's going to make it come at the expense of precision. In other words, there's a lot of nuance and details and complexities that I'm going to sacrifice so that we walk away with some clear concepts, okay? So at the end of the day, we should have clear how this word, the word soul is referring to different concepts, although related in these different sentences. And even though within that, I could really subdivide it further, make it more complicated, I'm gonna ignore all of that. If questions come up that require that further complex um, approach, I'm just going to simply say that's more complicated than we're gonna get into and move on, okay? All right, number one. A key teaching of Hasidus is that every single thing that exists possesses three qualities. How many qualities? Three. Three. Number one, that it exists. That's kind of obvious, right? And the way to understand equality is we're going to set every quality up against the contrast, right? So what would the opposite of saying something as by saying that it exists? It doesn't exist. That it doesn't exist, okay? I want to actually be a little bit more precise. When we say some, that something exists, the opposite of that is that it never existed. And I'll come back to in a second why I'm phrasing it that way. So something exists or it never existed. So what would that mean? If something no longer exists now, we would still say for this quality, it exists. It just exists in the past, right? For something, right? For something to, if it ex- and for that matter, we can say not only it, 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 it never existed, we'd never have to, exist. it never will exist, right? So it exists, is independent of when it exists, for how long it exists, that it exists in some sense. And that the opposite that it never existed, it never will exist. Okay, that's one quality. Okay. So, for instance, the difference between me and my twin brother, exist. I exist, <laughs> and my twin brother has never, has never existed, never will exist. Okay, good? <laughs> okay. You really have a twin brother? No. Oh. <laughs> That's why he goes in the second category. Right? Now, the second thing, the second thing is that it persists. What does it mean that it persists? That it continues to exist. That means that in some sense, it is the same thing now as it was before. It's the same thing later than it is now. Okay, this is an important thing because I'm going to just spend a a few minutes on this. People are mistakenly under the impression that according to Hasidus, things do not persist over time. Like, I'm sure you've heard the idea that according to Hasidus, God creates the world anew at every moment. Okay, it does say that. It doesn't mean probably what you think it means. If God creates the world anew at every moment, then how old would you be if you took that very literally? You'd be an instant old, right? Now, this would be a problem because, like, say, a bris has to be done on the eighth day of the male baby's life. So no child would ever be available for a bris. Um, 
Trees, you can only eat the fruit after they've been growing for three years. You're never able to eat the fruit from age a tree. Exist. What? Age, age right, right. So, so whatever that, that phrase means, which is not the topic of today's class, it does, not, it does not take away the idea that things persist. The actual Hebrew for this is kium. If you look in a Hasidic test, you'll see this word kium, the kium of something. That means it persists over time. It's the same thing when I come back to later, it is the same. It might change in some way, older. It might be hotter, colder, bigger, smaller, but it is the same entity. Okay? And the third thing, right? the, 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 the third thing are the qualities that it has that make it distinctly the kind of thing that it is. After all, water is not fire, people are not ants, the sun is not my glass of water, right? And that's not just because they persist for different durations, it's because they have qualities that make them distinctly different kinds of things. Good? Yes. Okay. Now, what Hasidus teaches is that all three of these things, that something exists, right, as opposed to it never exists, never will exist, it's that something persists, that it's the same thing now as it was before, or it's the same thing in the future as it is now, in some fundamental way, and that things have the qualities that make them what they are, all of that, is due to the soul. If the soul would be withdrawn from any entity, then what would happen? Well, it wouldn't have the distinct qualities that make it what it is. So if you withdrew the soul from the fire, let's say, would the fire be hot anymore? No. Would it burn anymore? Let's go further. Would it persist over time? In fact, not only would it not persist over time, but what would happen? It would have never existed altogether. It would have undone the existence retroactively. That's the most profound thing. Okay? Now, does that mean the soul is the thing? No. The soul's not the thing. The soul is, and it's not the soul itself, it's the presence of the soul in that thing. The presence of the soul of the fire in the fire, the presence of the soul of the ant in an ant, the presence of the soul in a tree in a tree. That means that A, it exists, B, it persists, and C, it has the qualities that it has. Withdraw the soul, then all those things get reversed. It has no qualities that make it distinctly what it is. It would not persist over time. In fact, it would not exist in the first place. So if, if, and if God were to pull the soul back, it'd be like undoing it. Like, so if, if God were to pull the soul out of this pitcher of water, I would have never drunk from this pitcher of water. We'd have no memory of this pitcher of water. It, it would never existed to begin with. Okay? Now, that soul is basically a way of some, some kind of divine energy, divine influence, right? That's clearly how we're using the term, right? Now, why are we calling it the soul? Like, why not, why not call it something else? Um, and the reason is because one of the things that we're trying to convey with the idea of soul is that it um, is fundamental it relates to the identity of things. And after all, if, the, if, it's the, if it's this kind of special divine influence in the tree that makes it be a tree, and it's the divine energy that makes the fish be a fish, right? Then somehow the real identity of what it is to be a fish as opposed to a tree is not found in the fish or the tree itself, but found in this energy. And so it's kind of the soul of that thing. It gives it its kind of core identity, okay? But in this sense, everything has a soul. Questions on this point before we go forward? No questions? Okay. 
Now, in what sense do animals have souls and plants do not? That's already something very different. They have, they have what? Behaviors. They have behaviors. That's half of it. What's the other half? So one, so I, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put it in these terms because I think it's the, the most concrete way to understand it. It's not necessarily the most precise way, but it's the most concrete way. If you take a plant and the sun is only available from a certain angle, what is going to happen? It'll grow towards It'll the towards the sun, right? This is called stimulus response, right? Now, that stimulus response, if we were to chart it out, and we'd be overly simplistic, we would say, physical phenomena, sunlight coming from this angle. Yeah? That's the stimulus, right? And then weird chemical reactions in the plant, and that result in what? The plant growing in the direction, right? So what we're saying is the stimulus is a physical phenomena, the response is a physical phenomenon. And that is sufficient to understand the entire interaction, yeah? Okay. When you have a dog walk over to the food, is it sufficient to say physical phenomenon, food over here, and then physical event, dog's body moves towards the food? No. No. You actually have to involve something else. So you have to involve as a sense perception. The dog experiences the food being over there, right? So there's a there's a way in which there's a subjective reality of the dog, right? The dog and, and the dog has a, a sense of the outside world. That's through the sense organs, and it's, it's a complicated system. So what you do is you'd say the food is there, physical thing, right? Then the dog smells the food, probably smelling more than seeing, because that's the primary sense organ for a dog. They smell the food, right? And so that's half. That's the outside physical reality entering into the subjective reality of the dog. And then you have the reverse, which is what you call behavior, which is now the dog, but the dog acts out of desire, desires the food, and that desire right, causes the dog to go towards the food, right? So you have a physical thing, the physical, say, putting the food down, which causes a psychological thing, right, a subjective experience, the dog smelling the food, sensing the food, which causes a different psychological thing, the dog desiring the food, which causes, again, the physical thing called the behavior, right? You have to enter this whole different realm, a realm of subjective experience. And that doesn't exist with plants. Okay? That makes sense? Okay. So, now, I've oversimplified. I mean, there's much more that goes on in that. But in other words, dogs and cats... They exist in two very fundamentally different ways. They exist as physical entities and they exist as subjective beings, beings who experience their surroundings and interact with their surroundings. And plants don't. Okay, so what does the dog possess that gives it that whole other kind of existence, that subjective existence, where again, it experiences its surroundings and interacts with its surroundings. It's a soul. So now now we have what we'd call the soul-body duality. 
In other words, that when we're referring to body as distinct from soul, we're saying that there are certain kinds of things and they can all be grouped together. And there's other kinds of things. Um, so if I talk about how hot the food is, what color the food is, those are all describing physical qualities of the food. If I, just, if I talk about where the dog is, how big the dog is, those are physical qualities of the dog, right? But the dog actually smelling the food, right? That's a subjective experience, it's a different kind of a thing. And so the dog has this other thing other than its body, it has its soul. And the intermingling, the fusing of those two things, the body and the soul, mean that the dog exists both physically and we'll call this subjectively or psychologically, however you want to, however you want to phrase it. Okay, now, it is a complicated question, which is not for today's class. What is the relationship between the body and the soul? In other words, the first soul was very obvious. It was a very kind of simple cause and effect thing. Entities ha- have these properties, these qualities. They exist. They have these proper, they have these, the, the, they persist and they have some kind of features that make them distinctly what they are. And what causes that to be the case is this kind of divine influence. And that's called its soul. But here we're saying something different. We're saying the actual dog is made up of two different kinds of things. A physical component and a psychological or conscious or subjective component. And somehow they're fused together to make one entity. And so one half of that mixture we call the bodily element, the other half we call the soul element. The exact way those things are different and the exact way in which they come together is not the subject of the class, okay? Does it make sense? Okay. So now let's, I'm gonna enter into dangerous territory, but we'll do this anyway. Have you ever um, used a, um, like chat GPT or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in what way is it fundamentally different than a dog? It doesn't have a subjective experience. In other words, ChatGPT is not sensing, experiencing your prompt, and then that gives it an urge to prompt a certain thing, right? It's, it's actually very mechanical. Okay. Um, Way back before ChatGPT, I would used to use the example of if you use the, um, the you, uh, on a lot of uh, word processing programs, they have a grammar thing that checks the grammar. Mm-hmm. It's not, when, you, when I use incorrect grammar, it sounds wrong to you. You have, a, you have actually a subjective sense of wrongness, right? <clears throat> Without even necessarily being aware of the rule being violated. It's not like the computer like feels that that feels off. It's just like, there's just a, you know, there's, a, there's when this happens, then that happens type of thing, right? So this idea that um, somehow you can make a computer program that would somehow become like a person is only, is only something true if you're thinking about a person as something that they do. But if you're thinking about a person as at least an animal in the sense that we just talked about, they have subjective experience, right? Then that would mean they would need a soul. Right? They would need that other element that makes it not just a physical reality, but a subjective mental reality for itself, not just that I project my own you know, thing onto. I can watch a cartoon and project mental life onto the pictures on the screen. It doesn't mean they actually have any. 
Good? Okay. Now, this wasn't so hard so far, yeah? Okay. Now, only human beings have souls. What does that mean? No. So, if something is important to you, are you willing to spend money on it? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Okay. Now, is that a good thing? Giving, is that a good deal? Like, I'm going to give up money in exchange and get something that's important to me. Is that yeah. a good deal? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's a good deal. Now, it does, at a certain point, the amount of money maybe makes not a good deal. And that's simply because with that amount of money, I can get other things which are more important to me, right? Okay. Now, what are some of the things that I can get with money? Give me, give me, give me a con- go vacation. Let's go to vacation, right? So, so by giving up the money for something that's important to me, what I'm in fact saying is, unless the thing we're talking about is the name of vacation, I'm in fact saying is that um, I could have used this money for vacation, but I'm not going to use the money for vacation because this this other thing, and I'm going to. So I'm sacrificing the vacation for this thing which is more important to me, okay? So I want you to now think about that when we are spending money, there is an element of sacrifice happening. You are sacrificing the stuff that you could have purchased with the money for the thing that you did purchase, right? So in other words, the money is not really a thing in and of itself, good? Okay, now we're in that mindset. So every time you go into a store and you buy something, you are what? Sacrificing. You're engaging in sacrificial rights. <laughs> Fact, okay? Uh, we, we, could, we could do this with other things as well. Um, time, if you are using your time on one thing, you can't do it in something else. So therefore, that other thing that would have required that time is being sacrificed. <clears throat> what did you sacrifice to watch the cat videos? I mean, no, but see, time is not a thing, right? The time, the time could have been used for something else. So what's that other thing that you could have done that now you're never going to do, that you gave up, you sacrificed to watch cat videos? Could be davening, right? Maybe you sacrificed davening for cat videos. Maybe you sacrificed sleep for cat videos. That's more likely. Okay, right? You, you seeing how this works? Yeah. Okay. Now, what I want to do is now separate two things, which is I want to talk about the way things feel versus um, a kind of moral hierarchy. Like, you know, there's the idea that some things are objectively more important, more significant, more proper. There's, a, there's an objective right or wrong versus how something feels. So I think if I were to ask you, is it appropriate to sacrifice... Um, submitting yourself to God who controls every aspect of your life for the mind-numbing experience of watching cat videos. Is that, is that a proper sacrifice? What, should that be sacrificed? Yeah. Objectively? Yeah, you should sacrifice humbling um, yourself before God so that you can way? numb your mind with cat yeah. videos? It's all You're sacrificing davening in order to, in order to numb your mind with cat yeah, videos. That's not right now. Right, that, that's, I think it's objectively wrong, right? That's not how it should work, right? Good? 
Um, now, does that always mean we feel that way? No. Okay, good. Okay. What is the one thing that objectively speaking you should never sacrifice? You could sacrifice it because again, subjectively you can experience things differently um, than they really are, right? The cat video example. What's the one thing that should never be sacrificed for something else? Your life? Nope. Definitely your soul. Your soul is the thing. That's what we're going to start with. The soul is the thing that you should never sacrifice for something else. I don't know. Your soul? Remember, we're still talking about human beings. Your soul is the... In other words, your soul... How are we going to start? Your soul is the thing you should never sacrifice. What does that mean? So I'm gonna, there's an expression in English. You've heard the term selling your soul. Is that ever a good thing? No. What is selling your soul? Selling your soul means that you've sacrificed your soul for something. And you should never do that, ever. So it's like the question, like, what do we mean by that? Right? What is the soul? We should get into that. But, but as, as a starting point, as an anchor point, the soul is the thing that you should never be, never be sacrificed for something else. In fact, let's think about the other way around. What makes one thing sacrificable for the sake of another? So I could watch cat videos or I could, um, you know, daven. Which one should be sacrificed for which? You should sacrifice <laughs> cat videos for davening. Why? What? So, the every the way it works is like this: your soul not only is the thing that should never be sacrificed. The real reason why you should do anything is either it is part of. It is something that your soul demands of you, something that your soul calls upon you to do, something that your soul requires of you, or alternatively, it's something that is a means to that. In other words, like this. As a human being, why should you be honest? As a human being, why should you be honest? Because you want people to be honest. No. Because if you're not honest, then what? That's right. If you are not, if you are not honest, right? No, exactly. You are, you are harming your soul. You are going against who you are really supposed to be. In other words, you are, you are, you are, you are engaging in an act of, and I'm using this word intentionally, deep violence against what makes you a human being. Even if no other harm comes from it. This is what's known as the image of God, which is universally human. Human beings have something called the image of God. And the image of God is something that we have to live up to. And we live up to, then we really are who we are, who we truly are supposed to be. And if we don't, then we're not, okay? So, I'm gonna use, a, a, I'm gonna use a, an expression which means one thing in Yiddish, an entirely different thing in, in English. The expression in Yiddish is to be a mensch. Now, if you literally translate that, what does that mean in English? 
To be a man. Now, if I say to be a man, that's literally what it means, to be a man. Yeah. Yeah. That's literal translation. But, but, but why didn't you know that? Because I'm a mensch, a mensch is a person who is worthy of the title person. Right? A person who's really a person. A person who acts as a person ought to act. That, that's, what, that's what it means to be a mensch in that phrase in Yiddish, right? So when you tell a kid, be a mensch, what do you mean? Should a person act the way you're acting? Should a person conduct themselves, you're conducting themselves? Is that, a, is that appropriate to what it is to be a person, given, of course, that people are created in the image of God? And if the answer is no, then you're not being a mensch. Now, when you translate it into English, it, it means exhibiting um, what are called masculine traits, which is an entirely different idea. So that not everything can always be literally translated. Um, so, for instance, is um, would 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 we say um, recognizing that the world does not revolve around you is fundamentally masculine or feminine trait? No, no, but it is it is something that is necessary to be a mensch. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? It's a, so this idea is that when there is a who you truly are, but you have to live up to that. Okay, and that's again a complicated thing I'm not going into. How much are you already a person? How much do you have to become a person? How much do you live up to yourself? Like there's different ways of discussing it and getting that. But the soul is that thing in this sense where we say humans have one and animals don't, and only humans have one, is humans have, there is something about humans that there is a what they ought to be. And that's the thing that should guide everything about our lives. And when it's not, then what happens? We're debasing ourselves. And that means we have qualities that are fundamentally different than animals, such as we have the ability to engage in self-reflection. What do I mean by self-reflection? We can ask ourselves, am I living the way I ought to live? Okay? We can engage in abstract reasoning. We can think about things um, from, from some kind of you know, transcendent point of view, some kind of absolute perspective, some notion of ultimate truth. We facilitate all this through language. We have a sense of, we, we have these, an entirely different makeup to ourselves. And by the way, our emotions also therefore work the way. A lot of the emotions that we feel are nothing to do with what's actually going on or entirely have to do with things that are internal, right? Many people are sad because on some level they know that they are not living up to who they ought to be. So there's this notion that there is a who I am supposed to be, which again, what that is specifically, we'll talk about that another time, um, biblically that's referred to the idea of the image of God, and to be a human being means to have that at the very least exerting pressure and weight upon you. Okay, um, there's a theme in, in, in literature, um, specifically Russian literature, um, about what happens when a person tries to live life with um, disregarding the fact that they have a soul. In other words, what happens? You're like, I'll do whatever I want, however I want. Like, not really beholden to anything. What happens to a person psychologically? They get sad, depressed. They, they, they sad, depressed, go crazy. It destroys them. 
right? In other words, there is some notion of we ought to be living up to something. And that, what that does to us and what that changes, that is what it is to have a soul. And if you think about that sort of thing, so when we speak about like, you know, the, the soul of something, we're talking about it, going back to the first use of soul, that notion of like it's, an, it's identity, it's, it's kind of core, it's kind of fundamental thing. Right. Now, this leads to a conclusion that many people don't like. Um, so you've been warned. What happens when dogs die? Well, we know what happens to their body. It, it decomposes and turns into not dog anymore. That's what happens, right? When dogs die, the body is no longer dog, right? What happens to the soul of the dog? That's right, it also dies. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dogs, right. In other words, like this. There's no afterlife for dogs or monkeys or chimpanzees or dolphins. That is, that is, I will, I will explain it very, very briefly. I'll explain it. Really? No, I didn't say only, I didn't say only men. I said the status quo is that it only happens to men. They're always, they have questions answered tomorrow, they can ask about it tomorrow, but the answer, okay, there's a, the notion of reincarnation, just very, very briefly, first off, is subject to dispute in Judaism. Not every, it's not a fundamental Jewish belief. Those who accept the idea of reincarnation, which would be Kabbalists, Hasidists, their understanding of reincarnation is nothing like um, the idea of reincarnation that exists in the East, um, and basically this, when a person is reincarnated into an animal, they are not the animal. Imagine that someone took you and put you in a big burlap sack and tied it. You would, you would be inside the sack, right? That's inside the soul. What's that? The analogy. If someone took you, a person, and put you in a big sack and tied the sack, right? You would be inside the sack, right? Is that... and? Is that different than being inside clothes? I mean, this is cloth and this is cloth. The answer is obviously it's different because the sack doesn't facilitate you in any way doing anything that you're supposed to be able to do as a human being. You can't even walk around, right? Whereas your clothes are designed to allow you to, you know, you choose your body in a normal manner, right? So here's like this. There is an animal. That animal is a complete body-soul thing. And then God sticks um, the soul of a person who's being reincarnated into that and it's kind of like they're trapped there as a passive observer. In the animal? In the animal. It can happen. That, that's, so they're, not the they're not the dog. They're not the cow. It's the right? They're they're not part of them them trapped inside the cow. So what happens to that part of them after? <laughs> so, 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 so going back to the point, that, so if that cow were to die, their soul would live on, but the cow's soul doesn't. doesn't. Okay. Right. This now. This was a hard thing to explain. Um, going back to thing that the, this is a hard thing to explain. Way back in the day, we now have an easier way of explaining, it, which is like this. Let us say that you download um, an app onto your phone, and then let us say that you take your phone and you smash it with a hammer into many little pieces. What happens to the app that you downloaded on your phone? It's still there. On your phone. That smashed oh into a bunch God. of little pieces. The app still exists, but the not One second, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, no, in other words, like this. Because the app is not a thing, it is just a pattern in a thing. 
When I download the app and you download the app, then that means there's a part of my phone which operates in a way that is the same pattern as the way your phone does. If I destroy my phone, the, the, the part of my phone that had that pattern doesn't exist anymore. It happens to be that that pattern is instantiated over there, but that's not, okay? So here's the thing. God has kind of a template for the psyche of a dog. God has a template for the psyche of a, of a, of a dolphin. But there is no actual soul of a dog or a dolphin that exists in it of itself. The soul of the dog or the dolphin is that element within it that allows it to have that subjective quality. Again, and it, it, and ju- and it, it depends on the body in a way that is analogous to the way the body depends on it. So for instance, if the soul never feel, of the dog never feels hungry, won't eat, the body will die. But conversely, if the body is broken, there's, there's nothing to feel hungry either. They, they're, they, they're, they're, de- they're interdependent. Similar, not ex- identical to, kind of the way software and hardware work. So if a dog dies, that dog is gone. There's nothing left of that dog. As like the notion of what it is to be a dog still exists in the mind of God, sure. But like that's not, that's not you know, your dog. Same thing with a dolphin. The same thing with every animal. On the other hand, when a person dies, the soul does not die. Okay. The soul, because the soul is something that the, that the body is supposed to live up to. It has a kind of, it has a kind of um, being to it that is beyond the body. Okay. I'm going to give you a, um, an idea where this, this, this idea plays out uh, uh, um, in, in people's minds, whether it's actually objectively this way or not, it's a separate discussion. Um, many countries have some kind of notion of what it is to be that country, like what it is to be the United States of America or what it is to be pick this one because it's good, what it is to be Germany, okay? And now here's the thing. Does the actual country and all of, you know, with the inhabitants and the different social structures and government always really instantiate what it is to be that thing? No. No, right? So that, what it is to be that thing as it really ought to be, right? That kind of has a, for lack of words, a life of its own, right? And that's the soul of the country. And, there's, and then that makes demands upon the body, right? Um, have you heard of the Renaissance? So the Renaissance, what was the Renaissance? One way of thinking about the Renaissance was taking the soul of the, Greco pre, of the Greco-Roman culture pre-Christianity and bringing it back to life in the body of post-medieval Europe. Right? In other words, but it has a kind of identity to it. Now, those are kind of social constructs and ideas in our imagination. When we talk about a person, we mean this is an actual objective thing. The soul exists beyond the body. The soul exists independent of the body. And when the soul is in the body, what ends up happening is the soul makes claims on the body. The body needs to live, live up to the soul. But conversely, the body can affect the soul which is why there's a notion of reward and punishment in the afterlife. One can damage their soul. One can corrupt their soul. One can sell their soul. And, and these can be understood in different ways. But that kind of duality, that kind of tension is uniquely human. 
Um, while we're on the topic of literature, um, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the tale of two cities. Mm-hmm. Yes? No? Mm-hmm. I thought the advantage of teaching in a Balchuva program is that everyone was literate, but... <laughs> okay. I talk, when I talk to my kids about this, they have no idea. So I'm tell sure us... It's required reading for most schools, though. No? I don't know. Yeah. Not anymore. There's no such thing as required reading anymore. <laughs> reading isn't a requirement. You know, back in the day, back in the day, used they, used to to have, they used to have symbols on tablets, mm-hmm. and then they developed writing on scrolls, and then they developed writing in books. And now we're back to symbols on tablets. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so, Tale of Two Cities, I'm going to ruin it for you, I'm sorry. But Tale of Two Cities is a, a story written by Charles Dickens that takes place during the French Revolution. Um, and it involves two men who look identical. One is a nobleman and one is a commoner. The nobleman is a very upstanding, righteous person, you know, for... Relatively speaking, in the novel, and the commoner is kind of a low life. And skipping all the way to the end, the commoner ends up having the opportunity. Oh, the commoner is also single and doesn't really like have a family very much, and whereas the the nobleman has a family. Um, and skipping to the end, the the commoner has the opportunity to take the place of the nobleman as he because he's going to, it's French Revolution, and they, they chop off noblemen's heads with the, uh, the guillotine. So he has the opportunity to take his place, and then the, the Revolutionary Tribunal think they've killed the nobleman, but the nobleman will be able to escape and live happily ever after with his family. Now, I'm not advocating this. Luckily, you're not allowed to do this at all, but that, that's not the point reason I'm bringing this up, is that the book ends with, with the, the, um, the commoner who's um, chosen to take the place of the nobleman to save the nobleman's life because he feels the nobleman's life is, is a far better life um, and he's on his way to be, have his head chopped off. You'd think, well, how would a person feel in that situation? Sure. Right, so it ends off with his kind of dialogue saying, this is a far, far better thing I've done than I've ever done and it is a far, far better place I go than I've ever been. Some, I mean, that'd be exact quote, but that's more or less. Meaning, he felt that he is finally being true to himself, to his soul, right? There's the sense. Now, whether he's right, whether he's wrong, but I, th- that subjective sense, there is something we really need to ought to be. Now, we could be wrong about that. I want to be clear, right? right? Whether our subjective experience is actually aligned with the objective truth of our soul is a separate discussion, mm-hmm. right? I might think my soul is, is, you know, in maintaining, you know, some kind of moral ethic and really that's because my soul has been so corrupt that I can't even recognize it or something like that, um, and this is where we get things like conscience. This is where we get things like a sense that we need to have a life that was well-lived. Um, and this is why human beings strive for things beyond merely gratifying desires. Does this make sense? Okay. So that's the human soul. Now, obviously, we'll go a step further. Obviously, um, if the soul is in its pristine condition, what would the, what would the person and, and, the, the, and the person was, had, a, had a clear sense of it? They would sense that that is to kind of live up to this divine image, um, to kind of live a life in accordance with the truth and will of God, whatever that might be, right? Make sense? What does it mean that Jews have two souls? 
We did talk about it on Hanukkah. So, people have so? for themselves, they want to strive something better, but Jews have for the Hashem. Okay, so here, what we need to do is we need to start again from the beginning. Go back to animals. Animals have a soul and plants don't. In what sense do animals have a soul and plants don't? They have subjective experiences. Okay, now here's the thing. Do tigers have the same kind of subjective experiences? And therefore, again, that would mean do they have the same perceptions of reality? And consequently, the same behaviors as, say, lions. No. no. Can you give me evidence to that? Yeah. That's not evidence of that. <laughs> yeah, but that could just be like technical things. I mean. Oh, the lions are. <laughs> the lions are. The kings. say the kings of the jungle, and the tigers are not. Lions are social. Hmm? Really? They're usually sleeping. The, the, the male ones. <laughs> They're very communal beings, right? You've got one male lion who sleeps all day and makes sure no male lions stay around, and then you've a bunch of female lions who go hunt and bring them food. That's how lions live. Tigers are very solitary. And absent mating, they can't stand other tigers. They clearly experience the world very differently, right? Okay. Just a simple example. And then you can go further, like, you know, say, search squirrels and wolves, very different types of, right? Mm-hmm. right? And it's probably impossible to really have a sense of what it's like to be any of those things. Okay. So if you have two souls, that would be like, imagine you had one big cat who had the soul of a lion and the soul of a tiger. <laughs> and then you come around another big cat. How do you feel? Conflicted. Very conflicted because your 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 lion souls like well we can maybe make a little pride here a little social scene right. This is like when Murphy was pregnant. Um, <laughs> we're all there. There, there is a similarity there. Yes. Yes. What? yes. Talking about every person. Yeah, but she no, was one. Yeah. Whatever. She was right, right. 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 So, but the, the uh, tiger soul is like, no, 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 this is not good, right? I need my own, I need my own space. No one should be around, right? It's not mating season. There's no, it's just, just me, my prey. That's all there should be there, right? Make sense? The difference? Okay. Now, again, subjectively, you can feel different things all sorts of times and things get messed up. But the idea of having two souls is that means there is actually two different kinds of beings that are capable of two very different kinds of subjective experiences living inside a Jew. Okay? And if, so just like a lion can never experience tiger-like experiences, tigers can never experience lion-like experiences, right? But, so now, that would mean if you only had one soul, and that would make kind of sense that you can only experience the kinds of things that your soul could experience. It doesn't mean you'd never be conflicted with one soul. You could be. Like, I could be very hungry and very tired at the same time. The eternal dilemma of, you know, <laughs> sitting on the couch, and I'm too tired to, go to, to, to get up and get something to eat, and I'm too hungry to go to sleep. So, what happens? Exactly. And then it's 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's conflicted, but that's not because you're having your. That's not because there's two souls, right? That's just because you have conflicting desires. That's not the same thing, right? Conflicting influences, 
right? Sometimes you might really want something to be really afraid also at the same time, right? Those are not the, that's not the same idea. So, well, what kind of experiences can these two different souls have? A godly experience or an animal experience? A godly experience or an animal experience. Hence, they're called the godly soul and the animal, animal soul, okay? If you don't have a godly soul, you cannot have? And if you don't have an animal soul, you cannot have? Animal experiences. Simple enough? So, but now to understand this, we would need to differentiate what is an animal experience versus a? Godly experience. Okay. Animals How do animals experience the world? I think actual animals right now, like, you know, dogs, cats, rats. I think it's hard to imagine insects, so we're gonna keep it with the mammals because we can kind of project a little into mammals, you know, with some, some level of legitimacy. Dolphins, how do they experience the world? Now, obviously, there are ways in which it's radically different, right? As I just mentioned, but there is something fundamentally that they all have in common. Survival. Survival. Okay, let's, let's unpack that word survival. What does survival mean? What, what does it mean to experience things in terms of survival? That everything revolves around that. Everything you do is to stay alive. But I, I'm not talking about their experiences. You just move to behavior. Are you talking about the soul? Yeah, how, does it, how do animals experience the world? You said survival, and I agree with you. What does it mean to experience the world through, through that? The soul level? Yeah, what does that mean? That anything they see... Okay, good. Anything they see is? Anything they see is either a key or the opposite of that to survive. Very good. Very good. Now, it gets a little more sophisticated because survival doesn't just mean the survival of the individual organism. It could be survival of the species, mm-hmm. right? So, for instance, like there are animals that do things that are dangerous to them but help facilitate procreation or whatever. So, but, okay. So, it's like this. We're going to play a little bit of a game. What's this? Picture. Okay. What's a pitcher? Plastic. Plastic is a pitcher? A plastic vessel. It was like, could you have a pitcher not made of plastic? <coughs> yeah. It's a vessel. Well, you said, what's this? And you said, it's a pitcher. And I said, what's a pitcher? Oh. It's a vessel. It's a vessel that holds liquid. It serves it. It's a vessel that holds liquid. For a service. To serve the water, right? Yeah, that's right. Because there's lots of vessels that hold water. This is also vessel that holds water. This is a cup, yeah? Okay. So the pitcher, right? You look, you say, it's a pitcher, right? And, and what you're saying is, well, I, 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 my, my mind sees this not as a cylinder piece of plastic, right? It sees it as a container of water that is used to dispense water to cups. Okay, and what's a cup? A vessel to drink from. So do you see how everything is anchored into how it ends up playing a role? Right, when you, when you... When you, when you look at things, and I just want to point this out, when you look at things and you actually start to get a sense of this is what this is, the frame of reference, the anchor point that you're using is how do things affect survival? So for instance, what is one of the things that parents really want to instill in small children about going to the beach? The water is? Dangerous. dangerous, right? Water, open expanses of water, your mind should register them as 
Now, what? Right? They should be. Right? It's dangerous. It's always dangerous. Now, is that the only thing you should have a sense of? No. No, but that's the first thing you should have a sense of, right? If we can get the danger, then we can move to another thing, right? Then it maybe also afford opportunities. But first, we have to sense the water is dangerous, and once we have the water is dangerous, then we can sense it. Then it's okay to sense it as maybe a source of. Um, you know, resources, you could fish, maybe ways of travel, maybe means of entertainment, right? But that always has to be um, being mitigated with a sense of that it is dangerous, right? right? A lot of what we're doing with small children, most of it actually not as done consciously on either part, is that we are guiding them into processing the world in terms of how things actually affect us. So that by the time you're an adult, most of the way you experience the world is in terms of how things will affect you individually, you, your family, you, your group identity, you, whatever, right? But some, some notion of your being, whatever that is, right? For instance, when you hear a new idea, okay? that doesn't fit with what you previously know, okay? And you have developed, for whatever reason, a, 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 a kind of self-conception of yourself as somebody who knows everything that needs to be known on a topic, right? So you're, you're the person people ask to, for answers. You're not the person who doesn't know, right? There's, you have you, 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 you developed that kind, of, that kind of an identity for yourself. And then someone says something an idea that totally contradicts everything you know. How do you relate to that idea? It's wrong. It's wrong. It's false. Why? Why do you relate to it as wrong as false? Because the falseness is simply the way you are experiencing it as a threat. It's a threat. That's all it is. It's a threat to your sense of well-being, your sense of security in your social position. That's all it is. But... You know, you don't have that level of, of, of self-awareness that's really what's happening, right? So your mind says that, oh, well, it, it's wrong. But it's wrong is just a way of experiencing it as a threat, right? So really everything we're experiencing as, could this help me? Could this hurt me? Does this feel good? Does this feel painful? Isn't that how animal, like the entire psyche is built around that duality. Will this hurt me? Will this help me? On a more immediate level, is this painful or is this pleasurable? Those are not identical things, but they, they collapse into the same basic idea. If you see an object you've never seen it before, what are the first things you're going to notice? Well, it's different than objects you have. How you could use it? No. So yeah. it's new? Yeah, very new. You're going to notice things like, is it spiky? Is it sharp? Mm-hmm. Like, those, like those are things you're going to notice really fast. Because that's dangerous. You're going to immediately develop an assessment of whether you could lift it. Like, these are things you might not be consciously aware of, but those are like, like your mind is categorizing every object you see as can I lift it or can I not lift it? It makes sense. That's usually like the first thing that you right. explain to someone. Does it make sense? Yeah. Now, this can become very complicated and very sophisticated, but it's all rooted in a very simple thing, right? So survival is not just the behavior Survival, okay, and, and, and we, we may want to broaden survival from not just survival, I'm to say survival is a, it's a broader category, it includes thriving and flourishing as well. It's not just mere survival, but 
So we can kind of group this in a, a notion of kind of well-being, well-being of the individual, well-being of the group identity, whatever it is. But there's kind of some notion of your well-being, whatever the you are, whatever the well-being is, that becomes the thing that structures all of your psychological experiences. Um, could such a soul love God? Yeah, love God. Yeah, why not? Love God, sure. Sure, you love God. Anything. Love anything, as long as that thing is not dangerous. Not just not dangerous. That thing somehow having that thing being close to that thing right enhances my well being. Right, sure, I could love God. But it's 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 an interesting kind of love, right? It's a love about how it enhances my well being. Could it be afraid of God? Yeah. Yeah, if it feels that somehow crossing God is not good for my well being. Okay. Do you, is there anyone in your life that you love? Other than your parents, for argument's sake? Yeah. Okay. Why do you love them? They just don't. What? Not your parents, not your children, not your siblings. Anyone else? Someone you love, why do you love them? They enhance your life. They enhance your life. That's always the reason. Is they it? enhance your life. That is always the reason. Now, there's superficial enhancing, there's enhancing where it's not really them as a person, it's some objectification of them, and then they're like, there's different ways, I mean, there's, there's but, but that's the end of the day. If, if, someone, if, if, if someone being absent from your life would, in every sense, leave your life just as good as it is now, or even make it better, you would no longer feel any feelings of love towards them. Now, maybe the way they enhance your life is they, Sometimes it's in weird ways that if I cut them out of my life, I would feel like I'm, 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 I'm doing something fundamentally wrong. Like maybe somebody has a, a child who's very, very, very difficult and they can't stand being around it. It makes their life a living nightmare. But to simply cut their child out feels like there's some kind of deep violation of some moral wrongness. And okay, there's all sorts of different ways this could play out. But it's coming down to this person being in my life somehow enhances Everything, what we understand, how we process reality is grounded in this kind of notion of well-being. This is the idea that they ate from the tree of knowledge of Taiv and Ra, which I'm not translating as, as good and evil, I'm translating as good and bad. That now our psyche is dominated. Right? We have a soul that every subjective experience is grounded in this polarity. Is this good for me or is this bad for me? Sometimes that can be very shallow and mistaken. Sometimes that can be very profound and enlightened, but it's still grounded in that. In that sense, it's fundamentally no different than any other animal. Even if what's good for me is living a life of meaning and purpose. Right? Okay, what about the godly soul? The whole focus is not... What's the difference in subjective experience? It's not your experience. No, it's my experience. It's my soul. It's my experience. No, it doesn't have to be said. What? The godly, everything in the godly soul is grounded in God. 
What does that mean? If no, no, no see, getting God wants is, is a way of actually corrupting this. Could the godly soul go to medical school? Could the godly soul on its own go to medical school? No, why not? You learn in medical school three things. One, you learn how the body works. Then you learn how the body breaks. Then you learn what we can do to fix it. I've summarized all of medical school. (laughs) You don't need to go for four years, right? We've got all that. You're all doctors, right? Right, is it? Yeah. Physiology, um, pathology, and then, you know, actual medicine. Right? That's basically it, right? You, you can't learn medicine unless you know pathologies. You can't learn pathologies unless you know how the body's actually supposed to work, right? Okay. Um, here's the thing. When you learn about how the body's actually supposed to work, right? Where is... How is that in any way about God? It's not. And therefore, things that are not about God don't really make sense. Now... What about the body breaking? When you go to medical school, you learn how the body breaks. It doesn't work properly. How's God part of that? God made that happen. Ah, uh, that, that's, no, no, no. See, see, I'm asking what you're learning about in medical school. If you, if you just like after that, well, God made it happen. Isn't it? Now, now, you know what, you know, now it is true that the godly soul could learn about illness. But the godly soul's learning about illness would be about things about how, um, for instance, illness is brought about by God punishing people for their sins or things like that, right? In other words, their entire understanding of the illness is centered around God's doing. Everything has, right? In understanding how something's happening, it has to come down to understanding what God is doing, not anything else, right? It couldn't understand medicine because in medicine, do you learn about God's healing? No. No, sorry. Can't go to medical school. Um, what are things that seem wrong to the godly soul? Things that have nothing to do with it. What? Things that have nothing to do with the godly soul. Things that have nothing to do with God. What are the things that seem right to the godly soul? Things that have to do with God. What makes something desirable to the godly soul? It has to do with God. What makes something repulsive to the godly soul? Right? So you see, in other words, the anger point is God. Now, that is a very weird kind of subjective experience. It's not like a normal human subjective experience. Okay? And I'm going to illustrate this with what I think is um, a, very, a very good way to put it. But it, it's a little bit... Are you familiar with the holiday of Purim? Yes. Okay. How is Purim traditionally celebrated by Jews? Four things. Drinking parties. Drinking parties. <laughs> I'm not getting into specifics on this, right? The sages instituted four mitzvahs on Purim. The, re- the reading of the Megillah, morning and, uh, evening and morning. The giving of gifts to the poor. Sharing, giving food to our, to our friends. And having what is called mishte v'simcha. Mishta v'simcha, it doesn't say suda, it says mishta v'simcha. Mishta v'simcha means a, a joyous drinking party. Now, it has to be done in the context of a meal, and there's a discussion of Talmud, is one required to drink, not required to drink, who's required to drink, I'm not getting into all these things, okay? But, okay, here's the thing. Why do Jews get together on the 
14th or 15th of Adar, historically, and um, have a lot of food and drink and maybe get a little out of control. Why? Because somehow God is present in that. But now, why do Jews look down on that activity? Because absent Purim, God is never present in that. In other words, if you start talking about the activity itself, you run into the problem. Jews seem a little bit weird because like, I mean, if drinking parties are like an okay thing to do, then we should like have a regular thing about drinking parties, right? But it's not about the drinking. Like if God, if God is somehow present in the drinking party, then we're all for the drinking party. If he's not present in the drinking party, nothing into the drinking party. Only specifically for that one. And since God is only present in drinking parties on Purim, and he's only present in drinking party, and, and then within the drinking itself, only certain people drinking in certain ways and certain amounts, you can look in Shulchan Aruch and see the discussions there, it's not really relevant, then, right? In other words, there's like, a, the godly is like a fundamental ambivalence about everything because it's, if God is present, I'm all for it. If he's not, then I'm against it. How about this one? Now we, now we start, we start with the easy one. Let's move to the next one. Child sacrifice. <laughs> only in the Akita. Oh, well, when? And even then. Yeah. And even then. Right, <laughs> and even the, but, right, so Avram was perfectly willing to like, you know, do that right? Although according to Rashi, it was he was it was it was it was it was not a child. He was thirty-seven. But whatever, yeah. uh, you know, human sacrifice, um, and and you know as much as that was with Avram. But then you move to like we just came up with Hanukkah, Hannah and her seven sons. Um, that's kind of like a passive form of child sacrifice, right? She didn't actively kill them. But then you move to the Crusades, right? Where then there was active child sacrifice, where like the men of many of the communities would actually kill their wives and children before committing collective suicide, so as not to convert under torture. Yeah. So, should we keep going? Genocide. Yeah, right, that one. So there's this thing about wiping out the nation of Amalek, man, woman, child, even their animals, right? So this is a thing that really, like this is a thing, like one of the things that shifted when monotheism moved out from Judaism to like being like universal, like in Christian and Islam, is that all of a sudden it's about like certain principles and ethics where Judaism was like, well, I mean, if God is present, then it's good. If God is being concealed by this, then it's bad. And the very same thing may or may not. And and that, to the godly soul, this makes intuitive sense. The godly soul doesn't think anything. Godly soul is not into kindness unless that kindness somehow manifests God. And the godly soul is not into punishment unless that punishment manifests God. But if it is, then the godly soul is all for it. The godly, the only things that make sense to the godly soul, impress the godly soul, are desirable of the godly soul, repulsive of the godly soul, dreadful of the godly soul, it feel and make the godly soul any sense of loyalty are things that centered around the presence of God. That's it. There's no other parameter for anything creating or, or, or generating any kind of subjective experience for the godly soul. Now you can see how these souls are really different. Right? Yeah. Okay. So if a person were to have both of those souls, and now we don't say, it's not just the experiences, there's something in you that is calling upon you to live a life in accordance with those experiences and to facilitate those experiences, your life is going to be very, very messy because you have these two different souls, right? So the notion that there's a godly soul and an animal soul is I'm taking some of the notion of the soul from the idea of the animals, right? We have subjective, something that gives us subjective experience, but it's not just, it, it creates a, demands on us, a consciousness to live up to it. And then we have two totally different ones, 
that are each vying to be the sovereign of who we are. And, 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 the, whole, and the whole grounding of our, of, of our psychology is going to be in conflict. And now let's be honest, most Jews, which soul is the one that is dominant and overt? The animal soul, right? And does that prevent you from being a religious Jew? No. Okay. Now, what does it mean that the, every Jew has three souls? So sometimes in Hasidus, what we do is we take the animal soul and we divide it into two. No, we, we, we sometimes will call it the nefesh sichlis, the rational soul. And by the way, in this sense, Gentiles also have two souls. A rational soul and what we'll call sometimes a natural soul. Okay. <coughs> Although sometimes the term animal soul will be used. And the difference is like this. Is my well-being found... Is my well-being found... Rational. The, I, I, rational is a better term. Did you name the other also? The, uh, natural, natural. 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 Okay. Yeah. natural and rational soul. Okay. Is my well-being found in the way things are, that's the natural soul, or the way things ought to be. I'm explaining to you the difference. Okay? What is better for you? To live, but sacrifice your principles? or to stay true to your principles, but die? What is better for you? To die. What? That depends which soul, right? The rational soul has a sense. Mere survival, right? And here's where survival is survival. Mere survival is not good enough. In order to truly thrive and flourish, I need to be living something, living living in, in the service or in touch or in tune with something greater than my, my own physical existence. And this is something that you can see all the time in every human being, which is when a person gets to the point like, what's the point? Like, why am I here? Like, even if I had everything that the world has to offer, it would seem kind of pointless. Which soul feels bothered by that? The rational soul. Would a cow ever feel bothered by that? Would a cow like ever, if a cow had everything the cow needs, in order to function as a cow. Would the cow then say, well, yeah, but like, what's the point? What's the point? I mean, it's just, right. And conversely, by the way, you could deprive a person of almost anything. And if they have a why I'm here and they're living from the dominant soul and is the rational soul, they will not just survive, they will thrive and flourish, even on the edge of starvation and torture. Okay. So even so, on the one hand, we group them together because they're fundamentally, it's about my well-being, right? In that sense, it's fundamentally animal. But there is a huge difference between the two, which is one sees their well-being fundamentally in how they attain virtue, how they attain something nobler than their mere survival. And the other is just, look, I have vulnerabilities and um, you know, the world has things that have to offer me that are both good for me and some of them are bad for me and I want to get the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff. I don't want to die. I don't want to be poisoned. I want to have food. Yeah. They're both fundamentally... About my well-being. And so, in other words, the, the, broadly speaking, these get collapsed into one, but it is important to differentiate them. And the, the reason is like this. Can 
the godly soul experiences be blended with the natural soul experiences. Let me explain to you what I mean briefly. The sense that something is good because God is present, does that have any overlap, like in a Venn diagram, with the sense that something is good because it's, because it's gonna make me feel good or, I'm, or it's gonna keep me alive longer? Not really. Why? Well, think for example of like, think for example of the mitzvah of sacrificing um, yourself for God's name. Yeah, that doesn't really work very well, right? But, but can't, no. no can't. Now, but what happens if you haven't said the rational soul, a sense of what is good for me is living a life that is true to something that really justifies living? Well, that, could that be a place in the, that, that is receptive to the notion that's what's really true, what's really important is God and not what happens to me personally? Those do have an overlap. In other words, the rational soul and the godly soul can um, have constructive interactions with each other. And if you think about it, when your rational soul is very dominant, you start to experience the world very differently. For instance, does it feel good? Does it feel good, uh, on this last thing, does it feel good to give into impulses? No. So here's the rule. The more your rational soul is something that you're actually, that's, that's something that you're actually experiencing life subjectively from that place, the less it actually feels good. It's not even tempting to give into impulses. You, people can get to a point, there's nothing holy about this, by the way, where giving into impulses is actually subjectively to them unappealing. You, know, you can get from a place where it takes a lot of, so to speak, willpower and control not to give into desires to the point that like, Impulses and desires actually like have no hold on you at all. And that has to do with how much your subjective experiences are coming from the rational soul versus the natural. natural soul. And that makes you more receptive to the experiences of the godly soul. But broadly speaking, we want to be clear that even the rational soul fundamentally is in opposition to the godly soul because it's grounding everything in terms of what is good for my well-being and not in terms of is God present here? Make sense? Okay, so these are different uses of soul that show up in different places of chassidus. Hopefully this was um, clarifying.